Good morning, y'all. I'm Ed Griffin-Hagen, one of the pastors on our staff here at my church, and we are in the third week, the final week of a, of a little short series on the book of Second Peter. And we've, been, uh, we've been digging into this for two weeks. The first week, we, we obviously, we went over, we were reviewing chapter one, and we were talking about uh, really knowing Christ, really what that really means the knowledge of Christ, being in Christ. Not a head knowledge, but a deep, intimate knowledge of Him. And then last week, chapter 2, um, Richard did a masterful job really talking through false teachers uh, that are everywhere. And, uh, and they were, you know, 2,000 years ago as well. Um, but recognizing false teachers and false teaching. Today we're going to be in the third chapter, particularly the first ten verses of chapter 3 and oddly enough I'm going to start with verse 10 and then we're going to go back to the beginning and work back to verse 10 and verse 10 uh, of chapter 3 Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief and uh, it echoes as well Luke Dr. Luke in his gospel in chapter 12 uh, verse 39 he says but understand this if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. You got to be ready. You got to always be ready. What is the what is like a thief in the night? What does that mean? And it means that he's coming. It means that he's coming when you very well and probably are going to least expect it. So you got to always stay ready. You got to be prepared. And Peter and Luke use a great analogy here because thieves come usually at night, usually when people are unprepared. And I want to tell you all something that happened three or four weeks ago. So you know, maybe you don't know, that the Kendrick brothers were in Columbus the last uh, this summer uh, shooting their sixth movie, Facing Giants, Fireproof, Courageous, that, those guys. They were here shooting, their, shooting the movie. Um, and we let them use our house uh, while they were here. And uh, while they were using our house, we were staying in a friend's condo in, uh, in Hidden Lake. We were sleeping on a mattress on the dining room floor, uh, which was kind of cool for a couple of months. Probably not forever, but for a couple of months. But unit number 56, that's where we were staying. And, uh, you know, every night and a few times during the day, but every night about 11 o'clock, I'd take Rudy uh, out. Rudy's our dog, our long-haired dachshund. That's Rudy. You probably can't recognize him because he's got those cool shades on. But that's Rudy. We've never had a little dog. We've always had, uh, like, black labs and stuff, but Rudy is a cool dog, and so that's Rudy. And so I'd walk Rudy every night. I'd take him out. I'd walk him. He'd do his business. We'd walk back down the sidewalk. We'd turn, uh, turn right, heading up to the door. I'd reach down, unleash, unhook his collar, pull open the screen door, push the door open, up Rudy goes, and in back there. Every night, every time I walked him, I did the same thing. So probably three weeks ago, it's about 11.30 at night, uh, I take him out. We walk down the sidewalk to the dog walk little area. Rudy does his business. We turn around. We come back. We turn right. We walk up to the door. I reach down, unhook his collar, open the screen door, push the door open. Up Rudy goes and in, and I looked up, and the rug that is there wasn't there. And the, the bucket that has Rudy's food in it wasn't there. And I looked up, and I saw 57 written above the door. And I, that would not be the condo that we were living in. That would be the people. Ne- who does that? Who, who opens up at 1130 at night the wrong house? 
And I'm like, what do you do? You know, what do you do? The floor plan is the same. When Rudy went in, he took a left in the dining room, took a right into the kitchen, and he was back in the abyss of the kitchen. And I said, Rudy, 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 nothing. I mean, nothing. He's back there. And I thought, I'm not walking in this condo and getting shot by somebody. So I sit there, and I'm like, what do I do? Y'all, this is a true story, I promise. I closed the door. I rang the doorbell. <laughs> nothing. At our house, when, I, when the doorbell rings, Rudy goes berserk. In these people's house, I don't know what. He was back there somewhere doing something that I don't know. So I ring the door, ring doorbell. Nothing happens, and I open up the door again. Uh, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Nothing. Not a word. I close the door. I ran the doorbell again. Not a peep. And now I remember these people have about a 120-pound Nazi German shepherd dog. And I'm thinking, okay, not only I'm going to go in there and get shot, but Rudy's going to get eaten by Adolf, the German shepherd, and then, and then the dog's going to tear my ankle off. I'm like, what do you do? I ran the doorbell again. Nothing. So I open the door up again, and when you, when you look in that door, it's a straight shot to the great room. Turn in the, right as I open the door, turn in the corner is Adolf and Rudy, bebopping down the hall like they're lifelong best friends. It is the funniest thing. And this, this German shepherd just, I think he like smiled at me. And Rudy just ran on out and went out the door and we went on over to, to Unit 56, which is where we were supposed to be. Well, the next morning at 8 o'clock, I get up to go out and walk Rudy again. And the lady that lives there is getting in her car. And I just spilled the beans. I said, I am so sorry. I said, I went in your house last night. I didn't mean to. Yada, yada. She said, thank God it was you. And I'm thinking, she don't know me from Adam. Thank, why? She don't know if I'm an axe murderer. But she said, thank God it's you. I said, you don't know me very well. But anyway, she, she said that, and she said, my daughter was upstairs alone in her room studying, my teenage daughter. And I was at work, and she called me scared to death, crying, telling me somebody was breaking into the house. She said, I called my brother and my sister-in-law, and they ran over there or drove it, flew over there, and got her and the dog, and they left. Y'all, you gotta, you, you got to be ready, because he's coming like a pastor in the night. <laughs> now, for real, have you ever really, have you thought about the fact that the Lord's coming back? We really should think about that, not so much just because of what's going on in the world today, but we ought to be thinking about him coming back, because he wants us to think about him coming back. And one of the very most important uh, uh, questions that we can ask ourselves is what is it that we ought to be doing while we wait? What is it that we should be doing in the meantime uh, before he comes back? And this book, this book is going to give us four sort of answers to that question. One, two, three, four. And the first one is this. We should stimulate our minds with Scripture. We should stir up, and this is in your worship guide, if you've got a worship guide. We should stimulate our minds with Scripture, stir up our minds, awaken our minds with Scripture. In verse 1 and 2, Peter stresses that purpose for his letters. Here's what he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. He says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to do what? To stimulate you to wholesome thinking, to stir you up to wholesome thinking. And he says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So in verse 1, Peter 
He tells us that he wrote these letters to stimulate our minds. He said, I'm writing these letters to stir up your way of thinking. And that purpose is very important to Peter. It's a throwback. It's exactly what he said in the first chapter of the book of Second Peter. And the root word for stimulate, that, that NIV translates stimulate, it primarily means um, to, to fully awaken someone who is, a, who is sound asleep. And it's the same root that in uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 37 and 38, you know that scene in Mark's gospel when uh, Jesus and his guys are in the boat out on the Sea of Galilee and, the, and, a, and a bad storm comes up and Jesus is asleep. It's the same word. And here's what Mark wrote. He says, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him. It's that word. They woke him. They stirred him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I ask you all, how you reckon that his guys woke him up in that boat? Do you think that they said, Jesus, it's time to get up for school. What, you need to get on up. Honey, get up. You're going to be late. You're gonna be, no, no to the no. That is absolutely, absolutely not what they did. You've got to imagine they cried out, Jesus, Master, Teacher, wake up. Don't you care? We're fixing to die. That's the passion of that word that Peter puts into these verses. That is the, the, the passion of stirring yourself up with the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul said, All Scripture is God-breathed. And we're going to talk next Sunday about what that means, about what God-breathed means. But Paul says, And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God's Word is over-the-top profitable for us. In James 1, the Bible's profitable as a mirror to, to see inside of our spiritual lives. In Ephesians 6, it's the helmet that defends us and the sword that we can use to fight our spiritual battles. In Psalm uh, 119, it's a lamp that guides us and it directs us. In Matthew 4, God's Word is, is, is bread to strengthen and to nourish us. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, it's spiritual milk for growth and for our development. The Word of God is profitable because in 1 Peter chapter 1, we are born again by the Word. In John 15, we're cleansed by the Word. In Psalm 19, we're made wise by the Word. We're warned by the Word. And then in Psalm 119, in verse 103, we're satisfied by the Word. And there the Bible says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So what, are, what should we be doing while we wait? What should we be doing while we wait for the Lord to come back? Number one is stirring up our minds. Uh, stimulating our minds and, and waking up our minds with Scripture. And number two is, Peter says, that we should not be sidetracked by scoffers and mockers. We should not be deceived. We should not be drug in the ditch and sidetracked by scoffers. Verses 3 through 6 say this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming He promised? And you know what they're saying? They're saying, you've been saying all along that Jesus is coming back. And these guys are saying, well, where is it? It ain't happened. They go on and say, ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You can hear them saying, 
you Christians keep saying that he's coming back, but where is it? It hasn't happened yet. And verse 5 says, but they deliberately, they willfully, they intentionally ignore and forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being. By God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Here Peter's warning us not to get sidetracked by these guys, by the scoffers of our world. It was happening back then, it is happening today. And maybe the scoffers in that day, in Peter's day, maybe they at least acknowledge that God created the world, but they, this verse, or these verses, say that their error was in denying that God judged the world by the flood. The ones today, the folks today, they've taken it a bajillion steps further. They're, they're, they're telling you that God doesn't exist. They're telling you that the world was not created by God. Atheism has certainly over years been crazy on the rise. Some of the best-selling books in recent years have been written to promote an atheistic worldview. The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Books that Christopher Hitchens wrote um, or Stephen Hawking. There's tons of guys that are bombarding the world with an atheistic worldview. Look, the last days, the last days are going to see people who will laugh and they will mock at anyone who takes this book seriously. They're going to call us, you know, fundamentalists and, and, and Bible thumpers who live our lives according to what they're going to say are the fables in the Scriptures, a book that they would say is out of date and it's out of fashion and it's obsolete. Listen, y'all, my family said this stuff to me. You don't really believe that stuff, do you? You know, dead people coming to life, global floods, everything created out of nothing, talking donkeys, Richard. They said this stuff to me. One of the reasons why the scoffers refuse to believe in Christ's second coming is because they refuse and deny the fact of creation. James Merritt, a renowned, solid-as-a-rock pastor, he, he said this, he said, This world has concocted all types of elaborate evolutionary theories, primordial explosions, and even invasions from outer space to explain the existence of the world. But the Bible says very clearly, very simply, that God spoke the world into existence. He spoke. He spoke it into existence. Third verse of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. What is seen, what we see, was not made out of something that already existed. It was created ex nihilo, out of nothing. God breathed it into existence. But the scoffers refuse to believe. They would prefer to believe the fable of evolution rather than the fact of creation. And y'all, we're going to do a creation series right at the beginning of next year and where I'd go down that road right now for two hours if y'all would let me, but I know you won't. We're going to talk through, among other things, that this particular battle is not so much faith versus science. It's good science versus bad science. Peter makes it plain in verse 5 that these guys deliberately, willfully, intentionally forgot. They, on purpose, ignored that God created everything. In other words, this problem they have is not so much 
a head problem. It's a, it's a heart problem. Because you see, if the world is created, if this world is created, then there must be a creator. And if there is a creator, then there must be an absolute standard of right and wrong. And if there's an absolute standard of right and wrong, you don't get to walk in your own sinful desires. You walk in his righteousness. And that is exactly what people don't want to do. They deny God. Because as one great philosopher said, without God, anything and everything is permissible. If God doesn't exist, we can do whatever we want. Right? Right? And that's what people do. They deny that. Stephen Hawking, brilliant uh, theoretical physicist, one of the most famous scientists of our day. He died in March or April uh, after he had Lou Gehrig's disease for years and years, uh, severely crippled. But infinitely sadder is the fact that Stephen Hawking rejected the reality that the universe was created by God. People constantly lined up to hear his atheistic views but no matter how popular these false ideas become, we cannot be drugged in that ditch and sidetracked by them. There are a couple of different ways that they will do that as well. One, first of all, they're just going to try to get us to buy into their disbelief. And that's a danger for our young people because our young people are saturated and bombarded with the false science of evolution, not only in school, but also through virtually every single science television show. And you don't even know, the nature of deception is you don't know that you're being deceived. I want you to watch this clip. We're going to have three really short clips. This one's 10 seconds long. This is from Carl Sagan's The Cosmos, which when I was in middle school and high school, this is what we watched in science class. The quality of the video is terrible. I want you to listen to the words I want you to listen to what's underneath these words. Y'all watch this. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. The cosmos is all that is, ever was, or ever will be. The cosmos is all that is, ever was, or ever will be. You know what that's code for? That's code for God does not exist. That's exactly what Carl Sagan is saying. If the cosmos is all that is, then God is not. Look, he's not coming at us with a pitchfork and horns and a cape. Right? He's not. And in this, in this issue... The language is veiled sometimes, and it's mysterious sometimes, and it's even sometimes romanticized. Neil deGrasse Tyson has redone the Cosmos series last year, and it's on Fox, and it's got all these cool computer graphics, and it's real sort of romantic looking and cool looking. And just because something's cool looking doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's, it's true. You've got to understand that it comes in mysterious veiled language. Another uh, uh, great danger, maybe the greatest danger for our kids seems to be when, when they run into these types of professors that hold so many teaching positions in colleges and universities around this country. This clip is a guy's name is Dr. William Provine, professor of the history of biology at Cornell University. That's an Ivy League first class learning institution. Listen to what Professor of the History of Biology. Listen to what he says. 
no gods, no life after death, no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no human free will, are all deeply connected to an, an evolutionary perspective. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow, and that's all there is to it. Dark. But it starts by giving up an active deity, then it gives up the hope that there's any life after death. When you give those two up, the rest of it follows fairly easily. You give up the hope that there's a, an imminent morality. And finally, there's no human free will. If you believe in evolution, you can't hope for there being any free will. There's no hope whatsoever of there being any deep meaning in human life. We live, we die, and we're gone. We're absolutely gone when we die. So we live, we die, we're gone. There's no free will. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics. There, there's no hope. That's a hopeless that's a hopeless way, and that is who is teaching the kids in the universities in this country. And, you know, if the, if the scoffers could just only see how blind they are to the truth, and we can never buy in to that disbelief. Matter of fact, we can not even let ourselves get overly discouraged by that disbelief. And it's tragic, that mindset. And you know what? If you remember, everything he said, he said is deeply tied to an evolutionary worldview. It is. But God is in control. Even with all of that, God is in control. And He always will be. And His, his book, His Word, says that He is coming back. So number two, don't get sidetracked by the scoffers. And number three, instead of getting sidetracked by them, count on Him being in control. Count on God's control. And you remember... That day of judgment is a definite. It's a definite. Verses 5 through 7. We're going to read 5 and 6 again. I'm going to add 7 to it. But they deliberately, intentionally, willfully forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed by the same word. What word? The word that they forgot in verse 5. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Y'all, destruction is, is spiritual, eternal ruin or loss. God absolutely judged the world with a flood during Noah's day. And He absolutely will judge the world again with fire. The world was created by God in the beginning, and it's going to be cremated by Him in the end. And I don't know if it came in with a big bang or not, but I guarantee you it's going out with a big bang. The Lord is coming back. And so you remember that God's day of judgment is definite. And remember the clock is in His control. Time is in God's hand. Verse 8 says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And that's a throwback to Psalm 90 when Moses wrote, and yeah, Moses wrote a couple of the Psalms, but Psalm 90 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. So what, what is for this verse, Second Peter 3, 8, what, is, what does that mean? One thing that it means for certain is that God is in control of time. 
God created time. God is bigger than time. God is beyond time. He transcends time. God is above the arch. I love this language that God is above the arch. You see the arch. What's above the arch? Anything else up there? No. What's below the arch? Below the arch is everything else. Everything. Time. Space. Matter. Everything else is below the arch. Nothing else is above the... God transcends all of that. We have got to right-size God. We jack that up all the time. We have got to get our arms around and have a right view of who He is. He's transcendent and He is apart. He is separate and transcendent from creation. He is eternal. He had no beginning, no end. We are not eternal. We're going to live forever somewhere, but we are not eternal. We had a beginning. And so not only were these scoffers ignorant of what God had done in the past, but they're ignorant of what He was like. They had a warped, twisted view of Him. Here's what the chief atheist of our day today, Richard Dawkins, listen to what he says. Listen to who he says God is. Hello, Professor Dawkins. How are you? I'm Ben Stein. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. How are you? Fine, thank you. You have... uh... You have written that uh, God is a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. No, I didn't say quite that. I said something rather better than that. Oh, well, please tell us what you said. Please tell us what you um, said. I, well, I would have to read it from, from, from the book. No, please. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So that's what you think of God? Yeah. So, that's who's teaching our kids. That's who's being plastered all over the television. The very first thing he said, if you were listening, he said in all fiction. Did y'all catch that? The most... what was the word, decadent, I think, the most decadent character in all fiction. So he called this fiction. He says that we, you and I created God, if you notice that. He he said he was, God is invented by mad, deluded people. Totally warped view of who God is. But he is still in control, y'all, and he is still coming back. And while we wait, Count on and lean on and get your arms around the idea that God is in control. And number four, lastly, is keep sharing the good news of salvation. Keep sharing the good news of salvation. Peter uh, gives us some amazing news in, uh, in, uh, in verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient. The King James uses the word long-suffering. Instead, he's patient. He's long-suffering with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's some good news, y'all. These scoffers, they didn't understand this eternal thing, and they totally don't understand God's mercy. Did you hear hear the word merciful in Richard Dawkins' description of God? No, it was the absolute opposite of that. And so in in this verse, these scoffers had 
they, they, they wondered why, if you keep saying that he's coming back, why hadn't he come back? Why hadn't he come back? Is it that, that why is it delayed? Was it that he's unable to come back? Is it that he's unwilling to come back? Was it that he's tardy? Is he off schedule? No. To, was he mean? Is he mean and he's not coming back? No. Not to all of that. His slowness, y'all understand this, his slowness in coming back is not procrastination, it's not laziness, and it's not punishment. It's patience that is motivated by his crazy love for us. His long-sufferingness with us is because he wants to give lost sinners the opportunity to get saved. He's patient because he wants heaven to be more crowded. Y'all get that? That's why. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that our God and Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The delay is really an indication that, that he has a plan and he's working the plan. In Ezekiel 18.32, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. I don't want you to die. Repent and live. And he shows mercy to all of us even knowing that all of us are not going to say yes to the offer. He wants for everyone to get saved. Unfortunately, that ain't what happens. He deals in remnants. God is long-suffering towards lost sinners because some will believe and become part of His elect. We don't know who that's going to be. We don't know who's going to say yes. We don't know who's going to say no. Our task as believers is simple. Share who He is. Share how He has impacted our lives. Leverage that for somebody else's forever. I have no idea when I'm talking to somebody and telling them my story, I have no idea whether, they, whether they're going to say yes or no. I have no idea whether they're lost or found. I don't have a clue. But here's what I know. The same Jesus that died on that cross was resurrected three days later and went to be with the Father in heaven is the same one that is going to return. I know it, I know it, I know it. And what is it that we need to be doing while we wait? It's four things. Number one, stir up our minds, stimulate our minds, wake up our minds with the Scriptures. Number two, do not be sidetracked and deceived by the scoffers of our day. Number three, count on God's control. Lean on God's control. And number four, keep on, keep on, keep on sharing the good news of salvation. And look, if you're not a Christian today, and you may be a scoffer, you may be a skeptic, or you may just be questioning the truth claims that Christ makes. He is long-suffering with you too, just like He was long-suffering with these guys back in Peter's day. They needed to repent and believe, and He was willing to save them. And to repent, it just means to change one's mind. And it's not regret, because regret usually means, I'm sorry I got caught. And it's not remorse, because remorse is a hopeless attitude that is kind of leads to despair. Repentance is a change of mind that results in an action of the will. Acts chapter 20, 21 gives us the formula for salvation. It's 12 words. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. God's patience at some point comes to an end. And so the time to repent is now because, because we don't know. The time to live for Jesus Christ is now because back to verse 10. 
The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Peter in verse 10, he reaffirms that it's coming. When is it coming? I don't have the vaguest idea. have not a clue. And the person that starts telling you dates and times, you better throw your red flag up because that's a scoffer. Actually, it's probably not a scoffer. That's a false teacher. There's a difference between a scoffer and a false teacher. Somebody tells you it's going to end on December 12, 2012. No, it ain't. The time came and went. They said that. Throw the flags up when the dates start coming. But here's when it's going to come, when the world is feeling secure. Maybe when you're up in your room at 1130 at night studying and the pastor breaks in the house. I don't know. The thief, the thief doesn't tell the victim that he's coming. Again, Acts 20, 21. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Make that decision, if you haven't, today. Today, before it is too late. Y'all, if y'all would, close your eyes, uh, and if you would, bow your heads. And so I'm going to say, if you, have made, if you made that decision today, number one, I am overwhelmed with joy if you made that decision today. The heavens are rejoicing if you made that decision today. And if you did, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. And you can pray it sitting in your seat. You can pray it quiet. You can pray it down here in the front. You can scream it from the mountaintops, whatever it is. I just want you to pray along with me, Lord. Today is the day that I'm turning to you in repentance and placing trust and saving faith in you. Today is the day that I'm making you, Lord, my leader and my forgiver. Amen. And so if that just happened to you, I want you to let us know on that connection card. I want you to let us know, not so we can accost you, not so I ain't bringing you no apple pie over to your house. I want you to let us know so that we can pray with you, so that we can pray for you, so we can walk that journey, because y'all... When you get saved, it's such a big deal. You just, you got to know how big a deal that is. And emotions are going to fly up and down. And we want to share in that with you. We just want to walk it with you. And if that happened to you, we want you, also, we want you to get baptized to take the God plunge. September 16th is the next time we're doing that. We want you to fill that card out, check that box. And we want to dunk you on September the 16th. So if y'all would, let me pray, and then I'm going to call Richard up. Lord, we love you today. We thank you so much that you loved us enough to die for us. Lord, we thank you for making that salvation available. Lord, we thank you that your word says that you are coming back. And Lord, I just want us all to be obedient in the wait, in the while we wait. Let us just do what it is that you would have us to do. And at the end of it all, Lord, is just to share with the world who you are and how you have impacted our lives and leverage our life and our story for somebody else's forever.